Hey, everybody, it is Rajiv. Now, before we start the show, I wanted to invite you to join our email list at 99pages.club. So each month, I send out two emails. No spam, I promise. One is a summary of the episodes we've released on the podcast in the past month, but the second is a what I'm reading now list. You know, I get asked for book recommendations all the time, so I will send out a monthly summary of stimulating nonfiction reads worthy of your time. I promise there'll be gems in there. That's 99pages.club to join our email list. Now, let's get to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the 99 Pages Podcast. I'm your host, Rajiv Srinivasan. Few reporters have covered the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan with a nuanced, critical eye like Rajiv Chandrasekharan. He wrote Imperial Life in the Emerald City and Little America about Iraq and Afghanistan, respectively. These books shine light on the colossal civil-military divide in theater, which led to disastrous decision-making costing many life and limb. What impresses me about Mr. Chandrasekharan is his ability to aptly criticize military decision-making while simultaneously showing incredible respect and deference to the soldiers executing orders on the ground. Rajiv Chandrasekharan is a former editor-in-chief of the Washington Post and currently is an executive at the Eames Project, the family foundation of Starbucks founder Howard Schultz. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider rating us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get get your podcast. Those ratings help us out a ton. Thanks and enjoy the conversation. You've spent nearly your entire career writing about American military and foreign policy, both in the form of books and in leadership at the Washington Post. Let's start out with what has fueled this passion? What has been the motivation for pursuing this difficult profession? I knew from a very young age from about fifth grade that I wanted to be a journalist. Uh, it was one of those things where, you know, you go through the phases, I'm gonna be a firefighter or a police officer. Newspaper reporter was what I wanted to be from a young age. But I didn't necessarily think I wanted to be a war correspondent or somebody uh, focused on covering the world. I thought my, my career would be, would be in a place like Washington or New York. And uh, <clears throat> I happened to get the chance to uh, take over the Washington Post Bureau in Jakarta, Indonesia, which, you know, is the capital of the world's fourth most populous country. People don't recognize that. And at that point, it was starting to undergo a democratic transformation. And, and I had Indonesia and the rest of Southeast Asia to cover. And it was a fascinating um, first step into the world as a, as a young reporter in my mid-20s. Uh, but then 9-11 happened. And uh, it changed my life like it did for so many Americans and for people around the world. And I found myself uh, within three days in Islamabad, Pakistan. And I should just note as somebody of Indian descent, though I was born in the United States, uh, my parents from India, and it's, it's not the easiest thing on short notice to get a visa to go to Pakistan, but I managed to do so. Um, and I spent uh, the next three months either in Pakistan or uh, crossing over into Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. In fact, I, in my old passport, I have one of the last ever visas issued by the old Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And it was one of those things where, to be honest, it was never part of my life plan but when the world uh, turns on its head and something unfathomable happens, your country's attacked, you uh, have a responsibility to 
truthfully cover events for readers back home, uh, you step up into that breach. And so uh, much in the way, I don't want to equate what I did in any way with those who were wearing the cloth of the nation and were called to serve in military service, but I felt a responsibility in my work that uh, there was a need to be there, to witness, uh, to document, uh, to share back home. Uh, and so uh, it never was something that I really gave much thought to. It was like, it, this happened, I've got I've to run in that direction and do my job. Well, I got to tell you, Rajiv, uh, as someone who did serve in uniform in Afghanistan, I wish there were like a thousand of yous writing stories about what we were doing there. Uh, in fact, I often am confused how our nation got mired in such a directionless conflict. And, you know, especially when I look these days on, you know, topics of more interesting investigative journalism, I think it's really focused on corporate America. I think uh, John Carreyou with ba Bad Blood. Uh, I'm actually reading yeah. Empire of Pain right now about the Sacklers and the Oxycontin. Uh, uh, epidemic in, in the United States. And I think to myself, why weren't there more guys like Rajiv Chandrasekharan writing about military incompetence <laughs> in Iraq and Afghanistan? We would have saved a lot of time and a lot of people's lives, hopefully. You know, this is hard stuff to do. And just like it's hard to, to cover corporate malfeasance, <clears throat> you know, writing about national security matters and getting beyond what you know, officials are saying behind a podium in a briefing room what, you know, generals are proudly proclaiming as they're doing battlefield tours and bringing cameramen along and really getting to the heart of the matter is is incredibly uh, difficult. Um, and it requires a time commitment and, quite frankly, it requires a, uh, a, a willingness to, to really invest both as, as, an individual, as an individual journalist, but also as a news organization. <clears throat> and I have to confess, I was like everybody else, just trying to get my head around what was happening, either in Afghanistan or in the early days of Iraq. But later on, as I spent more years out there and started to, to see that things weren't as they were being proclaimed back in Washington, I began to, to dig more deeply. And in all honesty, the truth of the matter can't be had in Washington alone, even if you have great sources and you dig and you dig and you dig. The truth of the matter can't be had just on the ground uh, because you lose that strategic perspective. You need both. And so what I started to do in the, my coverage of the Afghanistan war when President Obama was surging in large numbers of troops, including your unit back in <clears throat> the 2009-2010 timeframe, was I said, the only way to really truly cover this is at all levels. So I need to be seeing what's happening down with U.S. Army and Marine platoons in dusty forward outposts in the deserts of southern Afghanistan. And then I need to understand what's happening at the regional headquarters, at the headquarters for the country in Kabul, and then what's happening up in Washington, in the White House, the State Department, the Pentagon. And only when I was able to talk to people at all of those levels and see things and that, that I could truly develop a, a picture of what our strategy was supposed to be and what the true breakdown was, why this was never going to work. So let's dive in, right? And actually, first off, I want to call out to our listeners that we're really here to talk about two books of yours that I found both 
similar in nature and analysis, but covering two different wars. First, imperial life in the Emerald City uh, inside Iraq's green zone, as well as little America, the war within the war for Afghanistan. And one question that I'm really hoping we can start out with is these two wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, often get lumped in to the same conversation as if the global war on terror is just one giant bubble and these are just different fragments of that. But you've reported in and about both. Are these really the same war? How should the average American think about these two conflicts and their relationships? They're not. I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, over time, history books are going to conflate them because, you know, for, for significant years, they were occurring you know, in parallel, but completely different conflicts. Let's, let's be clear, Afghanistan began, the war in Afghanistan began as a result of the horrendous 9-11 attacks in the United States and the fact that the Taliban regime who was running the country back then was harboring Osama bin Laden and his al-Qaeda leadership. And they refused to hand over bin Laden. And as a result, the United States went to war. Now, did our ambitions grow from simply toppling the Taliban? to one of a broader nation-building effort in a country that, quite frankly, had very, very little human capacity. It had been devastated by the Soviet occupation in the 80s and the Mujahideen resistance, civil war for years, then the Taliban takeover. I mean, the, the country was in ruins and sort of the rates of human progress were so low, you know, incredibly high rates of illiteracy, of you know, infant mortality was, was, was awful, malnutrition was off the charts. And so U.S. forces get in there and U.S. diplomats get in and aid workers come in and they say, boy, we really have to help these people. And what goes from a very quick toppling of that government turns into a rebuilding effort and a very significant one because you're starting really from scratch. Now, could that have been pulled off? Perhaps. We had a fighting chance to do it. But a year and a half into it, our, our, we take our eye off the ball because the George W. Bush administration decides <clears throat> we have to invade Iraq. And Iraq was a war of choice. It was driven, as we now know, years later, by faulty intelligence, by political leaders who looked at some of this faulty intelligence and drew conclusions uh, that led them to say, you know what, there's a chance the Iraqis could attack us, not the Iraqis, let me be clear, that the Saddam Hussein regime could attack U.S. interests, so we should launch a full-scale war, which we did. The sad reality is, is that these wars have uh, left thousands upon thousands of American families without loved ones, and tens of thousands of Americans who bravely served with, uh, with a range of injuries, some of them incredibly grievous, some of them uh, still injuries that cause uh, you know, significant impact to their day-to-day -day lives, uh, post-traumatic stress, uh, sleep disorders, people, either the range of, of, of the, you know, war is not without human cost, war is not without financial cost. The conservative estimates are the, you know, we, we probably expended all told a couple of trillion dollars uh, on these wars when you look at all the all of the costs rolled in. But, you know, wars can also make some uh, individuals and some uh, businesses incredibly profitable. You know, wartime contractors did incredibly well off of those conflicts. And so 
there there is money to be made uh, in not just American firms, but but plenty of uh, Iraqis and Afghans along the way who who saw that there was a uh, th there's a chance to you know get a piece of the action, and they did. Let's start off with the war of choice, Iraq. What did you see on the ground there? What is the essence that we should be taking away from this book? So there, there are a lot of reasons for why the Iraq conflict proved to be so uh, bloody, so costly, so arduous, and, and those reasons, you know, run the gamut. I mean, the U.S. military was was unprepared for the insurgency. The U.S. intelligence community was. We we didn't embrace. Uh, a counterinsurgency strategy, one where we really tried to help protect the good people of the country against those seeking to cause harm until way too late. We, we went in, in many cases, kind of guns a-blazing when we <laughs> didn't need to. That said, I focus on one other really important reason. When the United States military arrived, so too did a number of diplomats and aid workers, Americans who came there to try to govern and rebuild Iraq now that the Saddam Hussein government had been deposed from power. And so if you were going to, to try to administer and rebuild a, a large country in the Middle East with oil resources and some human capacity and so forth, my argument would be we do have people with some, some skills in this country, right? I would have sent over people with Arabic language skills people with some municipal government experience, people who know how to uh, help rebuild and do things, and we have that talent. But instead, what happened was this was, seen, this was expected to be such a cakewalk by the administration in power at the time that in many cases, they just sent over cronies and well-connected people and kids of Republican Party donors. You had such absurdities. We sent over a 24-year-old young man with no experience in the securities industry and gave him the mission of rebuilding the stock exchange in Iraq. We sent over a 21-year-old young man who <clears throat> boasted that his most meaningful you know, work experience was as an ice cream truck driver. And he was assigned to the team of Americans trying to rehabilitate the Interior Ministry, which oversees the police and the intelligence services. <clears throat> and then we wound up doing incredibly silly things. We tried to bring no child left behind education policy to Iraq. In the midst of a guerrilla war insurgency, we thought, you know what? We should rewrite their traffic code. So it was this land of absurdities. It, the green zone was this enclave in the middle of Baghdad where the Americans had set up shop and they had set up bars and a nightclub. And, you know, in a, in a conservative Muslim country, they were eating bacon cheeseburgers. And it was just otherworldly. It was a little, you know, uh, enclave of Americana where you know, these, you know, these young Republicans who showed up were wearing their pressed khakis and, and, and polo shirts, and they would lounge with beers by a big swimming pool behind the marble-walled Republican palace. It just, it was so disconnected from the world outside, where ordinary Iraqis were living with a lack of electricity, a lack of clean drinking water, you know, uh, a lack of, you know, reliable food supplies, and constant violence on the streets. <clears throat> and here were these Americans blissfully cut off from that, thinking they had the answers to fix the country. And you know who saw it first? People who probably saw this you know, most clearly, those who could cross the cellular membrane. I could as an American and a journalist, but you know who else could? 
our uniformed military personnel. And when they would come in from these their bases in other parts of Baghdad or in other parts of the country, they come in here, they'd be like, oh my God, who are these people and what are they trying to do? What they are doing is completely thoroughly disconnected from what I'm trying to do in, you know, the, the town I'm trying to stabilize. You know, we're trying to build a well, we're trying to reopen the school, and my guys are getting shot at and bombed. And here you are drinking beers by the swimming pool and having, you know, parties on Friday nights. And it just blew the minds of U.S. military officials who would go back and forth. To be honest, I saw that myself to an extent when I came on to Kandahar Airfield from our time in the outposts. Uh, it was absolutely a separated world. But honestly, the picture you're describing in Baghdad seems particularly removed. I guess the next question that any American, a taxpaying American, is going to ask is, I mean, well, whose job is it to fix that and to recognize that that is not the right behavior in a war zone? Like, who is ultimately accountable for this? So, you know, this became a game of bureaucratic hot potato. You had, you know, the State Department saying, no, this is the Defense Department's job. This is a military operation, ultimately, in, in Iraq. The, the Defense Department said, no, 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 all the rebuilding stuff is the State Department's job. And so neither one wanted to assume full responsibility. Ultimately, though, all this rolls up to the White House, right? This is the job. This, this ultimately falls on the president's desk, the vice president's desk, the national security advisor. These are the folks who are ultimately responsible. And um, they, they eventually came to realize that uh, the uh, effort to rebuild and administer the country was, was flawed, but not till too late. And they, they kept telling them, oh, if the Iraqis can write a constitution, if they could hold elections, all this will be fine. And ultimately, all of those milestones failed to be the solve that they needed to solve the, the, the ultimate, you know, tension in the country, which was you removed the dictator and you had uh, significant groups vying for power. You had Shiite Arabs, which comprised a majority of the population, uh, saying, look, this is our, our moment to be in power. You had Sunni Arabs of which, you know, Saddam was one, but there were still 20% of the population was, was a Sunni, Sunni Arabs, and then you had 20% of the population who were Kurdish. So you had this kind of multi-sectoral, uh, you know, multi-sect, multi-ethnic society. There had to be forms of power sharing. Civilian the U.S. government didn't fully appreciate this. People, career experts in the Middle East at the State Department got it, but people elsewhere didn't, including in the White House. They just... They didn't fully appreciate what happens when you remove the lid of the pressure cooker in a society like that. And you know, the lid being Saddam Hussein, who brutally held everybody down. But you can't just expect the lid to come off and everything to be fine. You have to work to it. And we weren't we weren't set up to do that. Let's shift over to Afghanistan now. So you wrote this book, you know, to set the context. At this point, I think it was 2006 when General Petraeus leads a surge into Iraq that is largely viewed as successful to start at least plateauing the, the violence and getting the situation under control. Then a few years later, we decide, all right, we're going to take this playbook over to Afghanistan and send uh, a bunch of young folks uh, in that direction. When you saw that action go forward, when you saw Obama give his speech, I believe he actually gave it at West Point, what went through your head? 
Like, were you hopeful? Like, all right, we got the playbook. It's going to work this time. Or did you know deep down? Did you have some skepticism? I'll, I'll be very honest with you. I, I thought there was a chance it could work because I didn't know enough about Afghanistan at the time. You know, here, at least Obama was embracing a strategy that had shown promise in Iraq. He was turning his attention to the to what he deemed the good war, the war in Afghanistan, as opposed to the bad war, the war of choice in Iraq, which he pledged to end and remove U.S. troops from. And at the time, U.S. commanders in Afghanistan were saying, look, we only need another brigade or two of troops. We may need five or 10,000 more soldiers. That's it. And Afghanistan at that point was not in the throes of a full-on insurgency. It looked like there were pockets of violence, but by and large, Kabul, the capital, was a, was a safe place. It wasn't necessarily prosperous, but it was a fine enough safe place. So the thought was, perhaps this could, could actually work. Perhaps Obama you know, was, was going to come to this in a smart way. So what then happens? Uh, the military uh, leadership, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Defense Secretary, decided to change the commander at the time in Kabul. And a new general is sent over named Stan McChrystal. And he does an assessment of what he thinks is really needed to turn the country around. And he comes back and he tells the White House, actually, we need 80,000 more troops. And this lands like a nuclear bomb in, in the Obama White House. Like, oh, my God, you know, we laddered up for Afghanistan. We're not going to ladder for 80,000. What's going on? There are weeks upon weeks of um, long discussions and debates in the White House Situation Room where you have military leaders saying, look, we need these troops to turn it around. You have others, including Vice President Biden, arguing, you know what, that's never going to work. We should just have a very narrow counterterrorism strategy. Send in some additional special operations forces, focus on killing and capturing Taliban leaders, but don't go and try to rebuild. Don't try to do this counterinsurgency thing in Afghanistan. It'll never work. And the military's arguing, yes, it worked in Iraq, it'll work in Afghanistan. And ultimately, Obama decides to split the loaf and surge in about 30,000 additional troops. And now they're supposed to go to population centers. They're supposed to do what they did in Iraq by engaging in counterinsurgency. And at the same time, the State Department is supposed to have what's called a civilian surge, sending in you know, hundreds and hundreds of American government and other civilian officials to help rebuild the Afghan government. Like all good plans, once it sort of actually hits execution, it looks nothing like what it's supposed to be. And there are a lot of reasons for this, but <clears throat> what you wind up with is the U.S. Marines saying, oh yeah, we can send troops much more quickly than the Army can, but we want to send them to one part of the country. So let's imagine the United States. Oh, I'm going to do counterinsurgency here. Uh, well, you want to focus on New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, uh, you know, Dallas, and big population centers. Now, but the Marines said, hey, we actually just want to focus on like Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico. They wanted to go to the southern, southwestern <laughs> desert where there were no people. And we just flooded it with American troops. Meanwhile, large population centers, the arm, which, were with the, which were the response of the U.S. Army, the army was a little lumbering, and it took them months and months to spin up the troops to get there. You know this firsthand. And then other parts of the country weren't even ours to deal with. There were 47 NATO nations that were, or 47 nations, many of them from NATO, that, that were having responsibility for different parts of the country. And so in other places, you know, we're trying to convince our allies to send in more forces. 
the whole thing was a total mess. Ultimately, this was in service of, could we build up capacity for the Afghans? Could you get the Afghans to reopen schools and health clinics, show that their government could deliver some very basic things to the people in this largely remote, you know, largely rural, largely agrarian still society? What happened was that despite the arrival of some of these American civilians, not you know, in much smaller numbers than was you know, uh, hoped for, they just simply couldn't get the Afghans to step up, in part because it was just hard to find co competent people. You know, in the in the southern city of Kandahar, you know, 95% of the men are illiterate. You know, how do you expect to get people to step up to be government servants? The Taliban would threaten them, saying, you know, we'll, we'll kill you or your families if you do this. So nobody wanted to do it. And so the whole premise of the counterinsurgency strategy started to fall apart. The other thing I experienced on the ground, we came to trying to rally the, the local nationals in Kandahar, where I served. Like, a great example was with the Afghan National Army compared to the Afghan National Police. The, the police were recruited locally. And what, it, what I saw was that because the Afghan National Army was recruited so broadly across the entire country, they actually didn't really identify as with the people of Kandahar. If you're, if you're Hazara from the north and you're sent down to Kandahar, why, do you, why are you going to expend your blood? And these guys, these guys signed up for the army because they had no other job opportunities. And so they were trying to provide for their families. And if they got their legs blown off, they weren't going to, there was no, you know, unlike the United States where you get a veteran's disability payments and you know, the government takes care of you, they would get nothing. So they didn't want to go out and risk getting shot. And the, the, they didn't even know at the core what they were fighting for. We thought there was some great overarching Afghan national identity. But in Afghanistan, people more closely as, associate with their, their tribe, um, with the geography that they're in, in, in this, this village, this district. Um, it's not like a, an Afghan from the north um, believes that there's value in shedding his blood to protect the soil of the southern part of the country. We, we start to build a huge army there on a fundamentally flawed construct. And then we tried to do this in the U.S. Army model with, you know, supply chain logistics and, you know, all these other things. Because we, you know, how does the U.S. Army build another army? Well, you built in the model of what you know, your own army. Well, but the Afghans don't have all of that infrastructure, they don't have the capacity, they can't resupply their guys. And so these Afghan units would be sent out and then they'd have no way, they, they couldn't get gas for their vehicles, they didn't have food, they were relying on the Americans to support them. And they needed American intelligence, they needed American medical evacuation. And so as US forces pulled back, and, and this in more recent years, these Afghan units, some of them fought valiantly. I, let, let's be clear. Some of them fought bravely. They took enormous casualties, but they couldn't sustain the fight because they just didn't have the infrastructure to do it. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the Taliban were rough and ready guys, travel around in motorcycles, you know, grab food from local villagers, sometimes steal it. You know, they would sleep out of the open. They, they, they fought in a way that was sustainable on their territory. So let's... Go back to a couple months ago, and uh, I'm curious what went through your mind when you saw those videos of Afghan civilians chasing down C-17 cargo jets on the tarmac as 
we pulled out so abruptly from Afghanistan. Did you feel a sense of relief? Did you feel anger? What did you see in that moment? I will say, despite everything I've said about how badly we bungled this war, I felt a deep sense of shame, disappointment, and an outright anger for how we left. It wasn't the decision to leave that upset me. It was how we did it. It's easy to start a war. The getting out is the hard part. If we knew we were going to be ending it in that way, and look, quite frankly, Biden was clear he wanted to get out of Afghanistan. We had a moral obligation to do a handful of things. We had a moral obligation to expedite the processing of all those backlogged special immigrant visa applications, all the Afghans and their families who had been working bravely for years as translators, as support personnel for, for U.S. forces, for our, our State Department, our aid agencies, non, non-governmental organizations. Those people who are at, at real risk, and now we've seen, of, of Taliban retribution and revenge killings, we should, we should have gotten them out sooner. And we should not have forced so many of them to try to dangerously wait by the gates of the airport. Many of them are still in the country, unable to leave. We continue to be plagued by a failure of imagination in our intelligence community. 9-11 was a signal failure of imagination. But how many estimates in the intelligence community showed that, you know what, the Afghan army can hold out for another year or six months or whatnot? There was very little thinking of the snowball effect of a few Taliban victories, the degree to which the morale of the Afghan forces collapsed. We we still, 20 years on, haven't fully appreciated the range of possible outcomes from our actions and the range of of possible risks we need to uh, be able to defend against. I look at this and I say, God, we we could have done this uh, in, in, in a way that would have been less horrible than, than it played out. Um, and that's not an argument to say you had to be there in perpetuity. It's one where you leave in a way where you're trying to um, at least uh, protect as many of the people who helped you and humans who face genuine threat to their life and livelihood and, and, and try to help as many of them as you possibly can. You know, I saw a lot of those videos and uh, I had a lot of my friends and family and people at work ask me like, oh my God, these videos must make you feel horrible. Like that year was just wasted, etc." You know, in my little circle of close friends that served in Afghanistan, I got to tell you, we, we sat down and we'd have these Zoom calls and we'd just be like, what are you seeing? And I think, to be honest, in our little close-knit circle, I don't think any of them would say this publicly. They don't necessarily you know, have the, the platform or privilege that I do uh, to say this with little repercussion. But as bad as it was, it was the least of all the evils. You know, I think what we saw was like, yeah, that was really painful. And we screwed over a lot of the local nationals that helped us. But it, it, it sounds, you know, kind of silly in the same sentence to say we had we were incompetent entering, we were incompetent operating, but somehow we're going to trust us to design a competent extraction you know and i think those of us who were on the uh, on the sharp end of the sword if you will uh i think that as bad as it was it's like honestly it could have been 
and probably would have been so much worse. <laughs> and maybe that's just the cynic in me uh, reacting. Fair enough. But I also think we, we, we don't fully appreciate the degree to which the way this exit unfolded has exacerbated the trauma for service members, U.S. service members, who formed bonds with Afghan translators and support personnel, who genuinely cared for them and their families. And as they finished their tours and came back home, probably came back with the hope that these individuals would be living in a better, safer country. And as this went down, our failure to do more to help them has an indirect impact on those Americans who've served. Absolutely. Uh, not to be discounted at all. Uh, let's talk about the future. We've had 20 years of the global war on terror, if you will. And uh, we've got to apply some of these lessons to our engagements with Russia, China, NATO, uh, more broadly speaking. And uh, I'm not intentionally invoking what's going on in Ukraine, but uh, obviously that is on the forefront of people's minds as well. What are some of the key lessons that you believe not just our senior leaders need to walk away with from these past 20 years at war, but just the average American citizen? Like, what do we need to learn from these past 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan? Humility. In the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the, the ongoing bloody conflict there, yeah, there's some Americans who, who presumably are thinking, you know, let's, let's send in troops. Uh, let's establish that no-fly zone. Let's let's take a tougher line. And uh, these these two wars, I think, should leave us with a degree of humility about the unintended consequences of what happens when we ramp up in other parts of the world. That is not an argument to say we shouldn't be helping the Ukrainians in meaningful ways. It's that we have to be thoughtful about how we do it. And despite our many challenges at trying to train and build armies in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and I would say that, you know, obviously not successful in Afghanistan, but somewhat successful in Iraq. There are lessons here that have certainly been uh, absorbed and inform our efforts to help support the Ukrainian military through materiel, through intelligence, and through, through other uh, forms of support uh, that don't put our personnel on the front lines there, but nonetheless can provide meaningful support to the Ukrainians to defend their country. Let's take it to you now. What has been your story since you left this conflict? I, you know, you, I believe, relocated your family, moved on to a really great career at Starbucks and now the Eames. You know, my, my life took an interesting turn, but, but all because of a passion to help our veterans. Um, in 2015, I had a, an unexpected but fortuitous meeting with Howard Schultz, the modern-day founder of Starbucks, as he was coming to Washington, D.C. to v visit wounded troops at Bethesda Walter Reed. We bonded over our shared view that not enough was being done to address the civilian-military divide in our society. Uh, that led us to write a book together called For Love of Country, 
what our veterans can teach us about citizenship, heroism, and sacrifice. It was a modern-day Profiles in Courage. Ten stories, five set downrange of battlefield heroism, but five set here, back here at home, showing how our veterans continue to live a life of service in our country. That led uh, me to leave a great job at the Washington Post after 21 years and begin working with him at Starbucks on a range of projects using the company's scale for good. Uh, much of it focused on trying to help foster understanding in our country to build, build bridges in our polarized society. I uh, uh, helped to advise him for a period of time as he was exploring a possible uh, career in public service. And, and now I have the privilege of working with him uh, in, in a capacity uh, that's entirely focused on social impact, working with his family foundation and, and more broadly uh, with, a, with a range of initiatives, all aimed at uh, creating greater opportunity for all American people, uh, addressing historical inequities, trying to address our political dysfunction and polarization, and more broadly, just trying to create a better country for all Americans. And so, you know, I think my arc is, is both unusual but also, in some ways, maybe very typical and maybe analogous in some ways to many of those who have served in our military, where for some period of years, the greatest threats we saw were overseas, and we all had to step up. You guys stepped up in uniform. I stepped up as a journalist with pen in hand, but we went out there to address them, uh, to, to do our part in, in different ways. But today, the greatest threat we face as a country is here at home. Uh, it's our division. It's our economic inequality. It's, uh, it's our you know, fraying social bonds. And uh, as such, uh, many of us are turning our attention here. How can we take our, our ethos of service, take everything we've gleaned from that time abroad, and turn it back here at home and focus our efforts on trying to make this country a better place and trying to engage you know in 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 a in the work of of rebuilding i'm curious in your current role uh some of the sort of founding principles that you use to sort of dictate your work right like what are some of the underlying assumptions that you think differentiate the eames project so it's a it's a great question when i look at areas of engagement for us when i look at how we devote our time and our resources, I ask myself a couple of big questions. And let, let's just assume here that it's work in an area that is that is aligned with our mission and our values, that it is of critical importance. I ask myself, how can we engage in a way that is truly differentiated? What are we doing that's different than other people are in this space? And how is our approach going to be different? How can our approach be be truly leveraged? If we put in a dollar, how can that turn into 10? How can that either draw in other investors? How can we come up with new financial models to create real impact? Uh, connected to that leverage of scale, you know, how, how can the work we're doing truly create impact at scale? And then, you know, I, I'm, I'm always asking myself, you know, what is the systemic change here? Ultimately, for so many of the big problems that we need to address, it needs to, the, the, the end goal needs to be better public policy. We, we need better government policy. We need government 
dollars spent in more efficient ways and how can this get there. That said, government dollars alone will not solve our problem. Philanthropic dollars alone cannot, as many philanthropic dollars as there are out there, they alone cannot solve our problem. And the private sector can't do it by itself. The answer that I've come to, uh, and it's not original thought to me, but but a growing school of thought in, 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 in the space is we need more tri-sector solutions. We need government, the social sector, and the private sector to be working together in new and more innovative ways. Uh, and at times that means market-based, data-driven solutions to public policy challenges. It means public-private partnerships in new ways. Uh, and it means recognizing the, the desire of the private sector to want to engage meaningfully, but creating the right pathways for them to be able to do so. What are you reading now? I'd be interested if you had a reading list that you'd like to offer our listeners to get them thinking about some of these problems. What are some of the books that you would recommend? There, there are four books I'd recommend um, uh, that have been recent reads. Um, the first is a book called Getting to Yes. It's not a new book, um, but it's uh, it's a book about negotiation, which is something that I'm not a negotiator, but it's it just been a, a revelatory to me, written by Roger Fisher, uh, who is the founder of the Harvard Project on Negotiation. Uh, uh, in the nonfiction world, I've uh, recently really enjoyed a book, uh, a biography of former Secretary of State and former White House Chief of Staff James Baker, called The Man Who Ran Washington, uh, and a, a real sort of tour through the history of uh of not just sort of the 80s and early 90s in terms of foreign and domestic policy, um, but also the life of, of, a, of just a, a, a great American public servant. <clears throat> and then uh, I, I do enjoy the, um, uh, you know, the occasional thriller. And so there, there are two great books. One is called Damascus Station, written by a, a former agency analyst named David McCloskey, which is just a great read um, uh, centered around uh, the, uh, the, the conflict in Syria. And uh, a book that, uh, you know, I think has gotten a lot of attention of late, but I finally got around to it and just loved it, which is 2034, written by James DeVritis and Elliot Ackerman, um, which is a... a a, a fictional, but you know, uh, drawn on uh, you know, some 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 thoughtful projection and analysis of a of a conflict between uh, the United States and China that begins uh, in the South China Sea. And I guess your last question: You walk into a Starbucks. What's your drink? What are you ordering? Depends on the time of day. If it's the morning, it's a uh, it's a short two percent flat white. My favorite morning drink. Um, and then uh, if, it's in, uh, if it's in the afternoon, uh, I am prone to just a, a doppio espresso macchiato, which is uh, two shots of espresso with a little bit of milk foam on top. <laughs> That's like the classiest drink I could ever imagine. That was our talk with Mr. Rajiv Chandrasekharan of the Eames Project and former editor-in-chief of the Washington Post. He's also the author of two amazing books, Life in the Imperial City and Little America, covering Iraq and Afghanistan, respectively. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider rating us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those ratings mean a ton to us. Thanks, and we'll be back soon with a new episode.